All right, good morning. We're rolling back into the Word. I hope you got a Bible. If not, go snatch it up and uh, flip it open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been working through 2 Corinthians for a while. And uh, again, I hope you've I hope you grab a, a re- I say a real Bible, but like an actual Bible every once in a while. It's just nice to hold one, man. I know the digital world's changing everything, but there's something to be said for grabbing a uh, pages with his written word on it. So anyway, however you're looking it up, go to Second Corinthians chapter six, and uh, we've been talking about a, a cross-shaped life. That's been kind of our theme, and uh, the verse that we've chosen to be that theme is for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's from First Corinthians though, chapter two, verse two. But it's a theme we're carrying. All the way over. And before I go on, let me remind you that this is just me um, unpacking God's Word. I hope you're jumping in there with me, of course. Make notes, man. Write down where I'm totally wrong <laughs> or whatever. And, and just make make your own, pull your own thoughts out of there. Not that it's your thoughts, it's God's thoughts. But what God's telling you. And then come hang out with us. We assemble as church at night. Love for you to come hang out with us. We'll uh, tell you how to find us if you hit us up online, social media, uh, email, website, however you want to do it. And give us a shout. We'll tell you how to find us. We're in Tempe, Arizona. But you're welcome to come hang out and wrestle through this with us, talk it out, pray, eat. We got all kinds of good stuff. Anyway, uh, this week, though, we're looking at the struggle for today. That's what I'm calling it, the struggle for today. And in this section that we're looking at, you're going to see Paul telling the Corinthians basically not to waste the day um, because the time of salvation, Paul might say, is now open to all. And Paul's life is an example of the power of of God's grace, but also of the struggle that comes with it. And that's kind of where we're going to wrestle through today. So, Second Corinthians chapter five or chapter six, excuse me. Read the start with the first couple of verses, and you may notice I'm trying to do this with no glasses. That is no bueno. Let me put them on. <laughs> oh, so much better. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, "In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you." Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's so amazing. It's so awesome. Thank you for the opportunity to unpack it, to preach it, to share it. Lord, however that works, if it's in video, I don't care, Lord. Whatever way you give us the opportunity to unpack it, let us be faithful with that. Uh, I say us because I'm speaking for all those who open your word. And, and if we're believers, Father, I know it's our responsibility as disciples to do that. So, uh, Lord, even as I do that now, I pray, God, that you keep it your word. Never let it be mine. And speak clearly in a way that, that I understand, that I hear you first, that my life has changed even as I share what I believe should change others. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, put my glasses down so I don't fidget. There's a uh, old Christian song when I was a kid in Sunday school way back when. Um, uh, we used to sing, no, I'm not going to sing it, so don't get your hopes up. But it goes, uh, this is the day. See, I started. Watch it. I can't help it. This is the day. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You sung that one? Are you singing it now? Are you hearing it in your head? <laughs> maybe, maybe you have. But here's my question. 
sing it again in your head or just sing it again and fill in the blank and use a name. So what I mean by that is this is the day the Lord has made for blank. Fill in a name. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made for. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Be honest, have you ever thought of that little jingle that way? And I mean, it's a psalm. It's nobody invented it. It came out of God's word. But you ever thought of it being for somebody else? I know it says, I will rejoice and be glad in it. Um, But have you ever thought that you might rejoice and be glad in it because God made it for somebody else? In fact, if you go back to the actual psalm, you'll find out that it doesn't say, I will rejoice. It says, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Get rid of that pen because if I don't fidget with glasses, I'll fidget with a pen. Um, Yeah, it's not I will. It's us. So sometimes we think grace is this free gift that's given to us to make our lives easier. And I feel like the more and more time goes on, the more and more that, that becomes the norm. But I hope when you hear Paul's message today... Uh, I hope we all realize that, that, that the evidence of grace in our lives, its true power is displayed when we're sharing it with others. When we share it with others, even when, not if, when, it comes to great personal struggle. So here's the outline of the way I got this chopped up today. The day of grace, the determination of grace. The strength of grace and the struggle of grace. Yes, I like alliteration. (laughs) It makes it easy to remember. It makes it simple to follow. If you think it's silly, rewrite it however you want. It doesn't matter. It's God's word and just my attempt to structure it out. So the day of grace, the determination of grace, the strength of grace, and the struggle of grace. So the day of grace first in these first three verses, he says, Working together with him then... We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. From Paul's previous words there, together with him implies their participation and God's participation together. But it's in the sense that they're together as his people under his authority, not equal in partnership here. It's not that idea. It's in the sense that together... uh, As his body, we are the vessel that he works through, but not individually. We do it collectively as the body of Christ. Multiple parts, but one body. He's the head. So we're working together in that sense. He's always leading. He's always governing just as the head does the body. But we come together as the body. And and that's kind of the idea that Paul's getting at when he says this togetherness. And You can look back in chapter 5, verse 20. We talked about it already last week. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Look what he said, God making his appeal through us. That would be an example of him working together through us. But he's the one doing it. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. It's him working. Just like he said, implore right there back in 520. Now, back in chapter 6, verse 1, what we're looking at today, he says, appeal. And once again, we have another unpopular word. (laughs) Paul's used words like persuade, compel, control, implore. And now he throws in appeal. But, uh, well, appeal, it means, you you know what it means, but it means to kind of earnestly request that, that somebody do something. But in this case, it's not that you do something, it's that you don't do something. This is a different, a, a different use of that compel language to say, 
uh, he, he is appealing to them not to do something, and that is not to receive grace in vain. Um, Paul's addressing the church. We know that. And because of that, regardless of their struggles, it's safe to say they are believers. So grace is received here through our salvation from sin, their salvation from sin, ours too as believers. But Paul says in vain because they've done nothing with it. Paul would say that to us. It would be in vain if, if we've done nothing with that grace. Verse 2, he says, For he, God, says, or God's word, you could say, says, he, he's quoting Isaiah 49.8 here, and he says, In a favorable time or date, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now, Paul says, is that favorable time. Behold, now is that day of salvation, Paul is saying. Day here is not strictly a 24-hour time period. It's, it's the present period of time that he's talking about, a period that's a, of time that's assigned for observing or expecting something. Um, we say things like back in the day. We, we don't mean a day, 24-hour period. We mean a time period. Or we might say the day will come. Um, we're not necessarily intending a 24-hour period. We may be in, intending an exact second when we say the day will come. We may be talking about a period of time in the future. It's the same idea. Um, look at the tenses in this statement. He says, in a, in a time. And I'm reading back here in in, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, but he's quoting Isaiah. And when Isaiah is writing this, it's 800 years prior to, 800 plus years prior to the moment at hand. But Isaiah is saying, in a time, which implies the future. And then he says words like listened and helped. That's past. That's past. God saying, I helped you, I listened to you, those are past tense. So, so, so Isaiah is writing 800 years in the past about a time in the future when God says, I've done something in the past. That's pretty wild. And Paul takes all of that and says, it's now. Now is that day or that time period. God's saying through Isaiah, basically, there's going to come a time period uh, in the future, he's saying to Isaiah, there's going to come a time period known as a favorable time, he's calling it. A time when he, God, will respond to their prayers and move to save them, is what he's saying. And Paul says they are in that time now, that Jesus inaugurated that time, that the, uh, his cross provided sa- uh, salvation, salvation from their sins, and that Paul would say we are in that time now and we can go on and say we are still in that time today. Jesus spoke of it in Luke chapter 4, verse 17. He's in a synagogue, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. So they come out, they unroll the scroll, and they hand it to him, or they, they place it before him, and they hand it to him. And he unrolls the scroll, and he did, you don't turn pages. You just roll the thing out, and he, he rolls it out, and he finds the place where it's written, Verse 18 of Luke 4, Jesus speaking, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now he's reading Isaiah, but in a very real way, he's talking about what's happening himself at the moment. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Look what he says, to proclaim the year or the season or the time. 
the year of the Lord's favor. Same kind of language Paul was using, same kind of language Isaiah used in the other place in Isaiah 49 and 8. And he goes on, and then he, it says in verse 20 that Jesus rolled up the scroll after reading that. That's not all of it. He just stopped kind of in mid-sentence. He rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to the attendant, and then he sits down. And I love this. All the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him. So everybody's like paused and stared at him like, what's he going to say next? And he began to say to them, what? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Proclaiming the year, the season of the Lord's favor. Jesus said that moment, that declaration that it has begun, he's saying today it has happened. Why? Because he's there. It's, it's begun, the day of God's favor, the day of salvation has arrived. Why? Because the Savior is there. We are his disciples. If you belong to him, you are a disciple. I don't care how you feel about it, that's who you are. You are a disciple if you belong to him. We received a charge from him to go make disciples of all nations. We know that. Don't have to go over that again. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've already talked about that too. Paul uh, mentioned that, talked about it in great detail. And today, now, we can say, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Today is the day of grace. That's another way to put it. So don't waste it. That's what Paul's saying. You've got the charge to go make disciples, to bring the gospel that God is reconciling the world to himself. You've got that charge. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace, of favor. Don't waste it. There's no plan B, so stop sitting around waiting for the alternate uh, options. There's not any. Don't let God's grace to you be in vain. That's what Paul would say. Why the urgency? Well, because it's a day. It's fixed. It's, it's a moment in time. It's a beginning, and it has an end. There are countless scriptures, but I'm not going to read them all. I'll just give you something to make the point. Hebrews 3 verse 13 says... But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. Which means that the, as long as it's called today means there's going to be a time when the day is not the day anymore. Verse 6 of Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Implying that will not always be the case. In fact, Isaiah has a lot to say about that. John 9, Jesus said to his disciples, we, in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Watch, and then the end will come. The, the, the time, the day will change and a new day will be here. The day called the end. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, then comes the end. Well, what happens in the end? Well, he delivers the kingdom of God, Jesus does, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Matthew 25, verse 31, I'm not going to go into all of this, but it says when Jesus speaking of himself, he says, when the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then, then, in that time, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all nations and he'll separate one from people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 46 tells you the result of that separation and that day 
that the the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. There's clearly a time period on this day of salvation, this day of grace. Um, but we aren't at the end yet. It's still the day of favor. It's still the day of salvation. Will you refuse them today? Are you going to wait? You're going to take the chance? Is the day going to end on you and it's going to be too late? You're going to roll the dice and find out. Verse 3, chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he says, and this first point is much longer than the others. Let's just go quicker. So uh, verse 3 says, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. The King James says we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. That's a good way to word it as well. Has it ever occurred to you that we hold the reputation of the gospel? Do you believe that? That we Not God's reputation, the gospel, the reputation of the gospel. Do you believe that we hold it? Would it embarrass you if that was true? Would it excite you if that was true? I can tell you right now, we do. Paul's pretty much making that crystal clear. Grace is also received in vain when, we, uh, when we're not authentic, when we're not genuine. It's kind of where Paul's going here. When our life consists of fried chicken picnics and lazy boy afternoons, resort vacations and plans for retirement at the beach, and we claim to be so blessed by God with all of that, while the world's dying, suffering, hungry, lost, confused, angry, scared, without hope, Diseased, dying, and they have no answers. None. And we're on vacation. That would be receiving grace in vain. And more so, Paul would say, that would be putting a stumbling block for others. Paul's not claiming by saying that there's no obstacle or no offense. And he's not saying that they're perfect here or sinless. What he's talking about is their ministry, not them personally necessarily. He's talking about their ministry and the ministry of reconciliation he's been talking about. And that they're not being a hindrance to it by their conduct. That their behavior is not causing a hindrance to it. Um, They're living and they're teaching the gospel intentionally. How about us? How about you? you got the same ministry Paul did. That ministry of reconciliation, every believer has it. You have it. Does our conduct, does your conduct, what does it say about it? Does your conduct cause stumbling? What, what would be an obstacle that you might put in the way of someone else? Do you know? Think about it a minute. You could probably name some if you're honest. What would be an obstacle that you might put in the way of somebody else? Paul goes on here in verse 4. We have the day of grace, and then he talks about this determination of grace. Look at verse 4. But as servants of God, he says, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Wait, before I go on, what about Paul's words before in 2 Corinthians 5, 12? He said, we are not commending ourselves to you again. But then here in verse 4 of chapter 6, he says, we commend ourselves in every way. 
Well, what's happening here? Well, first of all, there's several meanings and several ways to understand the word commend. Uh, but I'll give you the two more popular ones. The one likely used in five, chapter 5, verse 12 is to recommend. He's saying we're not providing you a resume. We're not recommending ourselves again. We've already studied through that. Here, when he's saying commend, he's using uh, what, what it means is to prove or to make something known by action. And that would be where he's coming to in 6.4. He's saying they're proving themselves and they are. They're proving themselves by displaying the gospel, by sharing their lives with others in such a way that people would see and hear Jesus. Well, how do you know? What's the proof? What should I expect? If I were to claim the same thing, what should I expect? What's the proof? Well, Paul tells you what the proof is. It's war. That's what it is, black and white. It's war. It, and it requires great endurance, great endurance. We become a target for the enemy. Our greatest successes and the greater our successes become, the greater the target becomes, the greater the threat we become. To the enemy. That's what success is. You, you are taking something from the enemy. It, it is causing you to become a target. And here's the deal. It's more evidence and more evidence and more evidence that there is no such thing as a prosperity gospel. I'm not going too far off onto that. But this passage here is as good as it gets to argue against that one. There is no prosperity gospel. It is a lie. It's not true. Listen to me. If the world celebrates your decisions as a believer, as a church, whatever, if you make decisions as a church and the world celebrates it, there's a real good probability that it didn't come from Christ. I'm just saying because Christ's language was the world will hate you because of me. So if you as a church, you guys you guys are individuals, whatever, you're making decisions and your decisions are celebrated by the world, be careful. It's highly likely that that's not a decision that came from Christ. But anyway, Paul goes on. And i got to be honest with you to say I have never personally faced some of these. Uh, I'm not saying I'm anxious to, but, you know, they're here. He says afflictions. That is what it is. Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments. I've been in prison, but for a different reason. Riots, uh, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. He says hardships here. Hardships is poverty. Not that we're supposed to be the poorest of the poor, some would say. We're not supposed to have anything. But it's just basically saying we shouldn't be rolling in the Benjamins over here while the people we serve are starving to death. Paul's not saying that their whole life here is about poverty. He's saying that it will come, that when it comes, when they're being handed that, that he's basically saying they don't hold too tightly to anything. No massive reserves in the bank. No stacks of reserves in the bank for rainy days. He's saying that, you know, when hardships come, when poverty comes, that, that's that's where they are. And, and before you think things like, well, sleepless nights, I got that one. You know, or hunger, I've been there, I got that one. Keep in mind that this is not just about missing a meal or having insomnia. Paul's talking about these things related to ministry. They were the result of making disciples and spreading the gospel. It was causing those things. Riots, he was the centerpiece of the riot. Not like he got sucked into one because he was downtown when one was happening. He was the focal point of the riot. 
um, imprisonment. You know what that means? Beatings. I mean, don't get more blunt than that. Beatings. Just straight being beaten for the gospel. But Paul endures them all. Determined. Determined he endures them all. Why? Because the day of grace is now. So you have the day of grace, you have this determination of grace. And then here in verse 6, he begins to talk about the strength of grace. It kind of gets more positive here for a second. Verse 6, he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech. It basically means the word of truth. And the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Paul goes on... Um, at this point, with the, what they're proven true by. What he's saying, they commend themselves. What they're proven true by. He's saying purity. Can you claim that? Can you claim that? I mean, think about that a minute. Can you claim that you're proven true by your purity? Now, I know in Christ, we all have it in that sense. But how about in the eyes of others? Not you. Not you can say, hey, Christ makes me pure. No, do other people see you and can say, man, that... You know, he's proven true because he's pure. Man. He says knowledge, that that's, is what it is. Study, learning, effort to know, effort to have answers. Not for you, for others, so you can empower others. Patience, that's basically the word long-suffering. It means being able to hold your temper. Proven true because they can hold their temper. Where, where are you at on that one? You lose your temper easily. You lose your temper a lot. Shouldn't Paul would say that patience, able to hold their temper, all, all these things kind of hold on the next one, the Holy Spirit. It's a person. It's wild. He's saying these kind of uh, characteristics, and then all of a sudden he lands on a person right in the middle of it. The Holy Spirit's the buckle of all of this. Nothing is possible without him. All these strengths, purity, knowledge, patience, etc., they all come from him. They all do. That's what he's being proven true by, in a sense, not in a sense, he says so, by the Holy Spirit in him. And by no surprise, Paul's next word, love, is qualified by genuine love. It's like we talked about last week, just as the world defines love as not the same. Paul said the love of Christ controls them in chapter 5, verse 14. Same thing, he's qualifying what love he's talking about here, not just love like the world says, genuine love well what's genuine love it comes from the heart of god it's the kind of love that would see people uh would would see people the way christ did and what i mean by that is he's being nailed to the cross and in the moment of his greatest agony he's telling god to forgive and have mercy on those who are nailing him there that is genuine love and look i know plenty of people that preach I know lots of people that preach. I know lots of people that teach. I know lots of people that work uh, in spiritual matters or, or for uh, nonprofits or charities. I know people who are super charitable givers. But their actions, their words, their offerings, all those things are powerless without the Holy Spirit. Powerless. They're not genuine. They're not from genuine love because they won't praise for it. Hey, did you hear how good I preached last week? Did you hear my message last week? Did you hear my message last week? Did you hear my message last week? Hear my message? You going to hear my message this week? They, they won't. They won't praise for it. They want recognition. They want payback. Hey, make sure I get my you know IRS ticket. They they won't 
They won't uh, benefits of some kind. But when it's from the Holy Spirit, it overflows from you because your heart is filled with the same love that Christ's heart has. He goes on, he says that the word of God, they're proven true by the word of God or truthful speech. His word is perfect truth. How about the word of God would prove you true? Um, They're proven true by the power of God, which is the result of having the Holy Spirit and his word. And then he says righteousness in both hands. It's not just our words, but it's also our deeds there. All that we touch, all that we grasp, all that we grapple with, uh, all that we push off, all that we pick up and carry, all of it is led by righteousness, and that becomes a weapon is what Paul says here, against the attack from the enemy and to advance the truth of the gospel. These four things, the Spirit, the Word, power, and righteousness are very pivotal in Paul's life and ministry. He references them quite a bit. I'll give you a few examples. Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul wrote, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or you will give no offense. Or you will not put down a stumbling block if you walk by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, Paul said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, same language, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Romans 1.16, great verse. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. There you go. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These things were huge and pivotal to Paul, and they were where he found strength uh, through the grace that God gave him. So you have the day of grace, the determination of grace, the strength of grace, and finally the struggle of grace. Here, verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors, yet we're true. As unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So paradoxes, a list of paradox here, like tensions in language, a battle, positives and negatives, a struggle in the words that he's linking together. And he does this, he's done this before. Paul actually does it frequently. Second Corinthians chapter 4, we already looked in verse 8 where he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The trick here in these is not to fully embrace either side too tightly. In other words, you don't want to allow yourself to become defeated with the negative, but you don't want to allow yourself to become prideful with the positive. Paul says they're given both honor and dishonor, praise and slander. The honor and praise kind of sit together there, and that basically means you're being respected for your work or you're being encouraged for the work that you did. But he says we're also given dishonor and slander which means we're rejected for our work. The very thing some praise us for, some reject us for. In fact, they even go so far as to insult us for it. He says they're treated as imposters, yet they're true. And they're treated as unknown, yet they're well-known. The imposters and the unknown basically saying they're fakes. They're 
without any credentials that are trustworthy. They're frauds. Yet Paul says that they're also being treated as true and well-known, that they're authentic and widely recognized and acknowledged for who they are. Paul says they're treated as dying, yet they live. If he's meaning literally here, he means God's prolonging their life even when it seems that all is lost and they're going to die for the sake of the gospel. If he means dying figuratively, then they die daily. He's already said that, chapter 4, verse 11. But they live by because they gain eternity. But in this case, although both of those would apply, Paul does mean literally because he continues with saying that they're punished but not killed. That's a very literal statement. He goes on to say sorrowful yet rejoice. How is that possible? How are you sorrowful but you rejoice? Well, you follow a thread of the Bible, especially the New Testament, and you'll see that. There's lines like uh, rejoice in suffering. Peter, James wrote extensively about these things. Jesus was sorrowful at Lazarus' death. If you go read the story of Lazarus and, and John, you'll see Jesus... Uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. It's in that spot because Jesus is moved to emotion. He is sorrowful when he sees those who are brokenhearted over Lazarus who's died at this point, been dead four days. If you look back at the story, though, Jesus allowed him to die, uh, waited knowing he was going to die because Jesus knew something greater was going to happen and so he was going to raise him from the dead. And so he's sorrowful now. Jesus also knows there's rejoicing that's coming. Rejoice in, uh, or he says sorrowful, Paul says, yet rejoicing. But despite all the battle and the fighting and the suffering, look how Paul ends it. I love this. Possessing everything. Possessing everything. As having nothing, as having nothing, wandering without a thing in the world, but possessing everything. Everything. That means living with eternity as reality. That's how I like to think of it. Possessing everything is living with eternity as your present reality. Jesus said the meek would inherit the earth. That would be everything. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, so let's close it up. Simple question here for believers. Simple question. The reputation of the gospel is in your hands. It's in your hands. Not God's reputation, the gospel's reputation. It's in your hands. Has grace come to you in vain? What are you doing with it? I mean, are you suffering? I'm not saying you have to. I'm just asking. What are you doing with it? It is a favorable time, right? It's the day of salvation. Are you ignoring it? Or are you appealing to others that they would come to salvation, that God's grace would be given to them, that during this time of salvation they would turn their life to others? Is that what you're doing? If it's not, you need to start. And look, today, listen, if you don't know him, today's the day to solve that. Today is the day to don't wait. I know I asked that earlier. Don't wait. You don't know when this day is going to come to a close. None of us do. Don't wait. Come to him today while it's still the day of salvation, while it's still the day of favor before the day of judgment comes. Before 
The, the day of the end comes. Grace is available to you today. It's there for you because of the gospel, because Jesus Christ being all man and all God, perfect in every way, came to this earth, born of a virgin, lived a life that we could never live in order to take our sins upon him and die on that cross. We talked about that last week too. Taking your sins and going to a cross with it and giving you the righteousness of God. And, and dying wasn't enough. We all die. He climbed out of a grave three days later. People say, oh, well, that's crazy. Listen, if you believe the first words of the Bible, it's not crazy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God created the heavens and the earth, no grave will ever hold him. No grave will ever hold him, and it didn't hold Jesus. And because of that, by faith in him and him alone, we can have the hope of eternity. We can possess everything, though it seems that we have nothing, as Paul would say it. Do, do that today, man. There's only, one question, there's only one question out there. Do you believe this? Do you believe that to be true? What I just said, do you believe it to be true? Can you surrender your life to him, put your faith in him, and trust him that he is who he says he is and he is good for doing what he said he will do and has done can you do that can you put your faith in him alone as your hope if you can do it tell him today let me pray lord thank you so much for your word it is amazing it's awesome i pray god that uh, you're glorified by whatever is said um, as a result of the discussion that comes from this word. And I pray, God, you save people's lives. I pray you would open people's eyes today, that they would see who you are, that they would turn their life over to you today. In their own words, however necessary, just confess that you are Lord, not them. And God, I pray that they would reach out to us so that we can pray and encourage them as well. In Christ's name, amen.